Good morning. I want to thank you all for being here today. Get in out of the heat. Thank you for joining us online. Get in out of whatever is going on where you are. I want to start off uh, asking if this question. Is, is anyone familiar with the personality assessment known as the Enneagram? Anyone? Hands? No? Yeah, a few of you. Okay. The Enneagram is... Um, it's used by a lot of churches, actually, in order to help people understand the way that God has wired them so that they can find a fulfilling way to serve God. But in the interest of full disclosure, I also need to tell you that, well, the Enneagram has been shunned by some church folk because its roots derive from a few not very Christian sources, and things like that tend to make some church people reflexively object or recoil a little bit. Now, you guys know me well enough to know that I like to introduce all sorts of ways for adults to be better connected with God. And really, except for some very limited circumstances, I'm really not all that concerned with where or how things originated or were invented. Because in, in my humble opinion, if, if we're going to play that game, we're going to need to eliminate a lot of beloved Christian traditions like Easter, because as you may or may not know, Easter was adapted from the celebration of the pagan Anglo-Saxon goddess Eostre. Did you know that? That's where we got the word Easter from. But it's become one of our most solemn holidays. Christmas isn't in the Bible either. So uh, again, I personally prefer to err on the side of giving adults the information they need to make their own decisions. I guess I'm funny that way. Anyway, the Enneagram assessment provides a series of questions. It's an inventory, so a bunch of questions. And then based upon your responses, it assigns you to one of nine categories that are designed to reflect your personality. So I've taken the assessment, and my Enneagram result identifies me as an eight. This is how an eight is described. I'm called the challenger. The powerful, dominating type self-confident, decisive, willful, and confrontational. So, yeah. That's not all that pastoral. Am I proud of this fact? No. No, I am not. Is it accurate? Yes. Yes, it is. And as a result, as a challenger during my younger life, I really struggled with humility. And my initial career choice out of school kind of reflected that fact. Some people say, some people say that lawyers can tend to be um, a bit arrogant, a bit not, or a bit unhumble. Now, during law school, in as much as I was surrounded by other similarly afflicted people, arrogant individuals, though I was certainly humbled by some people who did law school a lot better than I did it, I still graduated with most of my unhumility intact. But then I stepped into reality. I'll spare you all those details, but suffice it to say, older lawyers have raised to an art form the practice of teaching young, arrogant lawyers all about humility. In public, in front of judges usually, and your partners, 
it is a humbling experience. And I have been quite aware of the power and the importance of humility ever since. Indeed, it was only after I had most of my arrogance smacked out of me that I began to understand the real value of humility. And it's only then that I became receptive to the good news about God. Once I had been humbled enough to recognize that I'm not all that, as the kids like to say, I was able to see the truth. The truth that I'm a mess. I say things, I think things, I do things that keep me far from the God who created me, and so do you. And then I learned that notwithstanding my inherent sinfulness, my brokenness, your inherent sinfulness, your brokenness, Jesus loves us anyway. And out of his love for us, he's made a way for us to be connected to God forever when we turn from our natural self and understanding how he paid for all of our sins when he died, was entombed, and rose again, and then ascended to heaven, promising to return to usher in God's kingdom on earth, if we devote our lives to his lordship, then we can, from that point forward, live eternally, both here on earth and in the world to come, connected in a loving, caring relationship to the God who created us, the God of the universe. And once we've determined to devote our lives to Jesus, well, then we'll be in a position to tackle the things that rob us of our humility. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for this privilege that we have to live in a free country, for this opportunity that we have to gather together among friends, to worship and celebrate who you are, to hear how you would have us live this life. God, we're humbled that we're yours. So God, as we continue on this morning, we would ask that you would use your word to transform our hearts and to draw us closer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, welcome to week three of our four-week series about God's grace. We took a Short break last week, Zach came up and preached to us, did a very nice job, so I thank Zach for that. We began this series by discovering that God's grace means more than just forgiveness. Grace can teach us a whole new way to live. And then last time I spoke with you, it was a couple weeks ago, we talked about how sometimes we can become paralyzed by grace. We talked about how there's often a disconnect between the good news of Jesus' sacrifice and our calling to become the light of the world. After hearing the same message week after week, along with the same exhortation from many pastors, now behave yourself or else, many believers struggle to grow in their faith, and rather they remain in the same place. We saw this last time Richard Foster said, having been saved by grace, these people have been paralyzed by grace. We saw that if we get stuck on the idea that God's grace is merely another way to describe just forgiveness, then we'll never discover that there's grace for our everyday living, that there's grace for our relationships, that there's grace for our ministry to others, our ministering to others. Well, this week we're going to explore the connection between God's grace and our humility. And along with that, we'll consider the great enemy of God's grace that is human pride. Now, before we begin, I feel like I need to give you all a heads up. If you like a lot of scripture, you are going to love today. We have a lot of scripture, a lot of reading. So here we go. Don't worry about memorizing it all or writing it all down. Just go with the flow here. So here we go. 
Did you hear the story about the Christian elementary school that was giving out their end of the year superlative awards at the end of the year assembly? Following the awards that were given for the kindergartners and the first graders, it came time for a deserving second grader to receive the character award. So the principal came up, gave a short introduction. He explained that the second grade had spent the year talking about character and that the award was being given to the humblest student. So a little girl was sitting in the audience and she's listening intently to see which one of her classmates would win the prize. And wouldn't you know it, they called her name. She was so surprised. Her family was blown away. They were so proud. And she nervously made her way up on the stage like a second grader will do. And she stood in front of the award table. And when she reached out her hand to accept the award from the principal, they took the award away from her. And they said, if you were really humble, you wouldn't have taken the award. You would have refused it. That is not a true story. It's just an illustration. But it gives us a picture of the conflicting ideas with which believers are faced when it comes to understanding what it means to be humble. So where do we get our ideas about humility? If God's grace is for the humble, how can we simultaneously pursue God's best for us, try to be our best for God, without falling into mere self-interest? Well, in addressing the issue, both Peter and James, when writing to the believers and in the they, they referred to the Hebrew Bible. That's the Bible we call the Old Testament. And here's what they referred to from the Hebrew Bible. It's from Proverbs chapter 3. The Lord mocks proud mockers, but shows grace to the humble and oppressed. Now, if they thought that this teaching of King Solomon was so important that they needed to repeat it, we can know it's pretty important, right? So now we have to ask our Self the question, why? Why is it an important thing to know? Well, first, it tells us that God gives grace. Okay, fair enough. We already knew that. But we think, okay, but that's what God's supposed to do. But then we see a qualifier. God gives grace to certain kinds of people. What kind of people? Humble people. Interesting. Further, this psalm tells us that God can withhold grace from another kind of people. What kind? Prideful people. In fact, three times the scripture reminds us that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Three times. That's, that's a lot of times. This means that we can understand that there is a link between humility and grace. When God the Father sees his children willing to take the low place in the family, he pours out a special portion of grace to strengthen us in the service to one another. Humility draws the blessing and favor of God. The same one who was stripped to the waist, who washed the feet of the disciples, that's Jesus, in case you didn't catch the reference, through him, we learn that God rejoices when we prefer others over ourselves. Not only that, on at least four separate occasions, Jesus said a version of the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Four times that's repeated. 
Four times Jesus laid out the challenge for his people. Humble yourself and by God's grace, God will exalt you. All right, how does that work? Well, let's have a look. So we'll start with this. God will exalt those who lay aside dreams of greatness and embrace dreams of dependency. We're not talking about codependency, psychology people. This is God dependency. So when explaining to the disciples that God desires for them to have a faith like a child, like that of a child, Jesus told the disciples, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. As John the Baptist advised in John 3.30, he, John the Baptist said, must become, oh, Jesus, God, must become greater and greater, and he, John the Baptist, must become less and less. I must decrease so that God might increase. You might have heard that before. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus also said, let me see if I can find this here. Oh, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me get to the next one. Next, we go to this. God will exalt those who lay aside the need for recognition and find the joy of serving. Now we go to Matthew's gospel where Jesus said this, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, so that's really the scribes and the Pharisees, tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide. Remember the phylacteries, we talked about that. Those are the little boxes that Jewish people pray with on their forehead and on their arm. Uh, they're called tefillin in Hebrew. That's what a phylactery is. When a phylactery is wide, it means that the leather used to make it is expensive, which indicates you're rich. So if you have a wide phylactery, that means you're trying to show off, right? That's, that's what that is. So they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. That's yet another where uh, people are instructed to wear fringes on the ends of their garments. So longer tassels means more money for fabric, means more money for you. They love the place of honor at banquets. They love the most important seats in synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. That means teacher, but it's a, it's a term of honor. They love to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have a father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. He finished it out with this, The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So if we read that and we take an honest look at ourselves, we should recognize that that's talking about us too. Jesus described how we often are. Jesus sometimes looks at us and thinks, wow, why are you striving so much for recognition by the way you're dressed? Or, or the seat you were able to procure or the people you know, or the titles you hold. Well, meanwhile, in that passage, the unrecognized servants come and go, quietly attending to the master's business. As Jesus revealed in the Sermon on the Mount, God notices these things. All right, next. God will exalt those who lay aside the thirst for honor from others and seek to honor others instead. Let's take now a look at Luke's gospel. When he noticed how the guests had picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. He here is Jesus, of course. 
When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or sisters, your relatives, or rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and you will be repaid. So in other words, don't invite somebody just to get the invite back. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So what is he saying? Well, Jesus is telling us, honor those who can't repay you. We needn't worry about getting what we think we deserve because God will take care of all that. God sorts out all those details. Moving on, God will exalt those who lay aside self-assessment and depend on God's mercy. Also from Luke, Luke said this, Then Jesus told this story. This is one of my favorite places in Scripture. I really love this. Told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. In other words, they thought they were thebomb.com and everyone else was just some lowly peon, okay? Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Remember, that's the religious leaders. The other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself. You can almost picture this and prayed his prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. I thank you, God, that I'm not a cheater or sinner or adulterer. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. God, you are lucky to have me. But the tax collector stood at a distance and he dared not even lift his eyes. His eyes were not lifted to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest, which is a sign of sorrow, and said, Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted, right? You get that? Jesus is speaking of two men at prayer. First man begins with his prayer with thank you, good start, but then he reverted to keeping score. Then he reverted to reminding God, hey God, in case you didn't know, I'm the winner here. The other man humbly sought God's mercy. Jesus pointed out that scorekeeping, that judging belongs to God. Now I say all this just to tell you this, God gives grace to those who humble themselves. And grace is pretty amazing. So then you ask yourself the question, all right, I get it, got it, grace, perfect, but grace for everyone? Is grace available to everyone? I can't tell you how many times over the years I've heard, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've gone through. Can anyone humble themselves and expect the same kind of grace from God? So what if we do this? Let's do an experiment. Let's, Let's make it really, really extreme. What if... There's a man who practices witchcraft and fortune-telling, who practices necromancy. What's necromancy? That's supposed to be the practice of communicating with the dead to predict the future, okay? 
Picture him engaged in not only all those things, but human sacrifice by burning his own children to death. Then take that guy, give him nationwide authority and influence so that he not only practices these things on his own, but he encourages and teaches other people to do the same. Now if you can, try to picture that man finding a way to win God's affection. Pretty tough, isn't it? But buried deep in the chronicles of Israel is the story of a despicable king who is guilty of all of that. And yet, he captured the Father's grace and mercy by humbling himself before God. His name was King Manasseh. You can read about him in 2 Chronicles 33. Now, we're not going to read the entire chapter now. It's a long chapter. I do encourage you to check it out on your own. But I, I want to review the four lessons that you should look for when you do read it. In 2 Chronicles 33, King Manasseh was transformed from a man who provoked God to anger to a man who caught God's attention because of Manasseh's humble heart. As a result, the story of Manasseh brings hope to everyone who ever wondered whether they could grab God's attention with their humility. So it's from King Manasseh's story that we learn these things. Number one, even in the midst of gross iniquity, extreme unfairness, God is still speaking. So let's look at the scripture. Manasseh did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He erected altars to the Baals, so the Baals are foreign gods. He made Asherah poles, so Asherah poles were, were tributes to foreign gods. He bowed down to all the starry hosts, so he bowed down to the, to the supposed gods in the sky, and he worshiped them. So this is not a faithful believer, all right? Not only that, he built altars in, in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever, and he built courts of the temple of the Lord, but he built altars to the starry host. So in other words, he was taking his faith, but he was worshiping these pagan gods in those places. Manasseh sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom. He practiced divination and witchcraft and sought omens. He counseled mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing God's anger. Okay, not a good guy. We all got that, right? All right. And even after this long list of rebellious acts against God, here's what the text shows us. The text shows us that first off, God still reaches out to Manasseh. The Lord spoke to Manasseh after all of that. He didn't say, I'm never talking to you again. The Lord spoke to Manasseh, 2 Chronicles 33.10. So from that little thing, we can see that our sin actually is one of the reasons that God reaches out to us, that God reaches out to his people. God loves his people. God refuses to give up on his people. All right, next point. God knows how to humble us. You want to just take a moment there and say, amen. Does God know how to humble us? He knows how to humble me. Man. All right, so we keep going. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, who put a hook in his nose and bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. By the way, that's far worse than handcuffs, isn't it? I mean, you have your handcuffs on, you kind of struggle around a bit, whatever. You have a hook through your nose. You're not moving. You're kind of, don't pull, don't pull, okay. Now, there's a significant difference between being humbled by God and humbling yourself before God. See, God may arrange the circumstances that 
bring us low in the eyes of others, but it is always at the end incumbent upon us to lower ourselves before God. God can extend extreme mercy, but we remain in control of our thoughts and in control of our hearts. All right, next. Our hearts can move God's heart. So here's what happened with Manasseh. And when Manasseh prayed to God, the Lord was moved by his entreaty, by the things he was requesting, and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom, and then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. You see, God is not impressed in any way by human power, by human wealth, by human wisdom, but God is impressed by the human heart. See, our prayers never have more power than when we take our proper place in submission to God. Then the last point here from 2 Chronicles, our humble example can influence the generations to come. You act humbly, you lead a life of the humble example, and it's going to leave an impact. See, ultimately, Manasseh humbly returned to God. Manasseh had gotten rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then Manasseh restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thankfulness offerings on it and told Judah, that's where they were, to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. All right, so that's where Manasseh ends. He comes back home. Okay, he gets God's grace. Well, what happened to Manasseh's family? Well, Manasseh had a grandson named Josiah, who as a child sparked a nationwide revival. Now, it's safe to assume, we don't typically like to assume we're doing Bible study, but it's very safe to assume that Josiah heard firsthand from his grandfather about the horrors of rebelling against God and the beauty and the grace that comes with humility. In the same way, our life lessons can become the seed that springs up 30, 60, 100-fold in the lives of those, of those people who follow us, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, our friends, their children, and so on, and so on. And the Old Testament history gives us much more than these extreme stories. The Old Testament brings us snapshots into the hearts of those who went before us. And these stories can do the same thing. They can shape our lives. And like Manasseh, but only more so, Jesus modeled the way of humility. Paul gave us a perfect description of the humble way of Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's been said that what's whispered in the Old Testament is shouted in the New Testament. Humility is the doorway to God's kingdom. Humility spared Manasseh's life. Humility is the way of life 
for Jesus. Humility is no less the way of life for us as well. Now, there is something we can all do to bring the grace of God into our lives. We can eliminate our pride. We can humble ourselves. Because as we've seen, God's grace meets us in our weakness. God's grace flows ever stronger toward the humble in heart. Now, it's real easy to cross from truth into arrogance. When you think you know something, you kind of get a bit puffed up about it. It's easy to label those people that don't see it, those people that don't know truth as fools. It's easy to cross into enemy territory while we congratulate ourselves on being right and righteous all along. But grace understands that merely knowing the truth isn't enough. Along with our knowledge of God, along with our knowledge about God, we need to be a grace-filled people for God. But pride always stands in the way. Pride is a thousand faces, but always has the same goal, to make ourselves more and to make God less. Pride is the leaven of the Pharisees. Pride is the enemy of grace. Pride causes us to see grace as a zero-sum game. If this person's getting grace, I'm not going to get any. It ain't true. Pride causes us to see grace as a zero-sum game as if God's kindness to others means less grace for us. But grace is not of this world. Grace isn't scarce. Grace is the catalyst for the age to come, for heaven on earth. Grace exposes our desire to sit on the throne of our own private kingdoms. We show humility when we understand what God's grace has really done for us. C.S. Lewis said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is not thinking of yourself at all. Today, I want to invite you to take an inventory of your heart. A humble heart paves the way for a greater grace, and a prideful heart does just the opposite. So which one describes your heart today? Today, we've seen that God will exalt the humble if they will lay aside their own egos and embrace their dependency on God, all to bring him glory, and God will exalt you as well with the same humility. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for bringing us through your word, for allowing us to see just how your grace has worked over the ages and just how it's available to us. God, as we continue on today, as we enjoy time together in our picnic, as we continue on through the week, I ask that uh, you help us to remember to take that pride that we all have and put it in check, to come to you humbly, and to say to you, God, I'm here. I'm here to serve. Just put me to work. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.